0: You know, a dictionary is almost like a glossary of life. You peek inside the dictionary and you see descriptions of basically everything around you. And the addition of new words is part of the continuous growth of our ever-expanding language. New words are added to the dictionary only when their use has become very common among a large group of people, and every word moves at its own pace. There's no average speed for a word's acceptance into our language or our culture or our dictionary. It just all happens uh, kind of at random, every word moving at its own pace before it's accepted. Three years ago, one word that has been with us for hundreds of years, it went back into the dictionary for the second time this time as an acronym. In 2018, the word GOAT from the world of farming, which meant an agile, horned and bearded, cud-chewing animal native to rocky mountainous regions of the world, it officially became capital G, capital O, capital A, capital T in the world of sports, and GOAT stands for the greatest of all time in the world of sports. But it was actually a quarter century earlier than 2018. It was way back in September 1992 that the acronym actually made its first modern appearance. It wasn't in the dictionary, but for the very first time, uh, a lady named Lonnie Ali, she incorporated a company called Goat Inc., to manage the commercial use of her famous husband's name, likeness, and intellectual properties. And that famous husband, of course, was a boxer named Muhammad Ali. He often referred to himself uh, exactly that way. He often called himself the goat, uh, the greatest of all time. He was quoted in an interview, I think it was 1974, saying, I wanted to be the world's greatest fighter at 11 years old. I wanted to be the greatest of all time. And in the eyes of his, of his fans, Muhammad Ali became exactly that. His knockout fight with the previously undefeated champion George Foreman in 1974 It grossed $100 million, and it was watched by a billion viewers, which at that time was one quarter of the world's population. It has been called the greatest sporting event of the 20th century, and that event and a very spectacular career made Muhammad Ali the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Today, GOAT, the greatest of all time, it praises exceptional athletes in every sport, but it's also used of singers, musicians, actors, other public figures. And when you say somebody's the goat, just so we get that out of the way, can you look at your neighbor and say, you're the goat. Now they're not, but it just feels good. You can mean that any way you want, I guess. You're a farm animal that chews your cud. We can mean it any way you want. Today, GOAT praises all kinds of people in all kinds of fields. GOAT means the ultimate competitor, the master of their field, the top of their class, the best of the best. GOAT means unmatched, unequaled, unrivaled, unsurpassed. But with apologies to Muhammad Ali, you can't really declare yourself the greatest of all time. Somebody else has to do that on your behalf. Who is the goat? Who is the greatest of all time? Well, that became a pathetically ridiculous, constantly running argument between Jesus' disciples. They argued about it all through his earthly ministry. They were still arguing about that even at the Last Supper. Who's the goat? Who's the greatest of all time? Until the master had to set them down and set them straight. It's embarrassing that these men who were called to follow Jesus, that they talked like this. Look at these scriptures just really quick. Matthew 18. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is it me? Is it him? Who is it? Luke 9:46. And there arose a reasoning among them. That's a King James way to say they had a, an argument. Which of them should be greatest? Mark chapter 9, Jesus asked them as they're walking on the road, he said, what are you guys talking about back there? And the Bible says, they held their peace for, by the way, as they were walking, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And then it falls to another gospel writer, Luke, who records what happened at the Last Supper They're still arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus is just hours from being arrested and put to death for our sins. And they're still arguing about who's the goat, who's the greatest of all time. This happened at the Last Supper. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. The disciples were always jockeying for position in the kingdom. Until the king of kings got down on his knees and washed their feet. It was only at the Lord's table that they finally became one instead of 12. When you see what Jesus has done for you and what he's forgiven you of, it's not hard to love somebody else. Jesus washed their feet and then he told them this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant... Is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. How ironic is it that when little tiny human beings, when we think we are somehow the goat, the greatest of all time, the greatest in our field, the greatest accomplishments, how is it that little tiny human beings we puff up with pride and arrogance? But Jesus who is the real goat, by the way, he laid aside his glory to leave heaven. He humbled himself to take on a body of flesh. He lowered himself to become a servant to his own creation. He was born in a filthy manger. He lived the life of a pauper and he died the death of a criminal on the cross, all for you and me. How is it that we could ever think we're the goat, we're the greatest, when we know Jesus? You see, our God, He is the goat. (laughs) He is the greatest of all time. God is more massive than our wildest imagination. He is bigger than the biggest words you used to describe him and worship him tonight. He blinks his eye and your lifetime comes and it's gone. To him, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day you could write all of human history on his little fingernail and still have lots of room left over the God you worship. He has no dilemmas. He has no quandaries. He needs no counselors and no advisors. Your God faces no problems and no shortages. He has no fears and no worries. He has no rivals and he has no equals. Our God He is self-existent, self-contained, self-perpetuated, self-powered, and self-aware. In other words, he's God, and he knows he's God, and nobody else can do anything about it. Our God is faultless, and timeless, and ageless, and changeless. He is ever-living and never-dying. After an eternity of being God and holding the universe together... He shows no signs of wear and tear. He's not even breaking a sweat. He's not tired. He doesn't need a nap. He is almighty God. He's the greatest of all time. He has no needs. His accounts are all in the black. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he made every hill that those cows are standing on. Our God is the greatest of all time. And so he does whatever he wants. You can't stop him or outrun him. You can't refute him or contain him. You can't do that to our God because our God has never needed a teacher or a therapist or a loan officer or a doctor. His rule and his reign are unrivaled in history and throughout eternity. Our God sits on an everlasting throne, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Our God has never feared a power struggle in heaven or a hostile takeover by hell. He doesn't have to watch his back because he has no equal, no peer, and no competition. So when you lift up your hands and your voice and you begin to give him praise, you're not wasting your time. You're praising the greatest of all time. He is unparalleled and unprecedented. He is matchless and limited. He is indescribable and somewhat incomprehensible. He is irresistible and yes, he's invincible. He is untamable. He is uncontainable. One preacher said you can't get him out of your mind and you can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The cross couldn't kill him. Death couldn't keep him. The grave couldn't hold him and hell couldn't handle him. He's the goat. He's the greatest of all time and he is worthy of your praise. (laughs) My goodness. Paul described what we call not only the incarnation but a facet of the incarnation when God took on flesh. We call it the great condescension. And Paul described it this way He said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But here's what he did for you he made himself of no reputation, he took upon him the form of a servant, and he was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. That's got to be one of the greatest understatements in the whole Bible. He humbled himself. I guess he did. He left angels worshiping him. He left the mighty throne of eternity. He left beautiful heaven. He left the new Jerusalem. He humbled himself. It would have been a great condescension if he'd come to earth and sat on the greatest, most powerful throne of the greatest, most far-reaching empire of the world of that time. That would have been a condescension. But he didn't just do that. He was born into a pauper family. His birth, it was held in a manger with a a bunch of ragtag shepherds making an appearance. Nothing was spectacular about him throughout his life. Life. The Isaiah prophesied and said there's no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus didn't look exceptional, but my goodness, he was exceptional. That was God manifest in flesh. And because he humbled himself, and because he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, because he did that, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. It's above the name of every country on this planet. It's above the name of every human being you've ever met, including you, no matter how famous or powerful or well-connected. It doesn't matter. His name is above every other name. But let me tell you something. His name is above cancer. His name is above diabetes. His name is above every kind of disease and affliction. He's got the highest and greatest name. It's a name that's above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. (laughs) Now, I know we get a little rambunctious when we get worshiping, and I like that, because here's what's going on when we gather together. Someday, every knee is going to bow. Someday every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We've just decided to do it well in advance. We do now what the whole universe is going to do then. We've decided we're going to worship him now. We've decided we're going to worship him no matter what we're going through. Because he's the goat. He's the greatest of all time. Now, This has been pointed out by many people. There are all kinds of websites and articles, and you'd never believe that Facebook would ever weigh in on this. Facebook never weighs in on anything, does it? But even this week, people have reminded me that uh, goats, they don't seem to have much of a positive connotation in the Bible. In fact, goats tend to have a negative reputation based on just one passage of Scripture. Scripture. That talks about the final judgment. But contrary to what you may have heard or read on Facebook, the devil is not portrayed as a goat in the Bible. He's not. He is pictured in other ways. He's a deceiving servant serpent. He's a ravenous wolf. He's a devouring bird. He's a roaring lion. He's even a ferocious dragon. But he's not a goat in the Bible. The idea of the devil being a goat actually comes not from the Bible but from the world of the occult, witchcraft, and Satanism where they have an image of a man with a goat's head. They call it Baphomet. And that was adopted years ago as a symbol of Satan. So the idea of the devil is a goat, that's not in your Bible. That's nowhere in Scripture. But still, goats are painted in a bad light just because of Jesus' words. In Matthew 25. Here we go. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another. as a she- Here it is. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And that's it. That's the one negative connotation for goats in the scripture. But there's more to it in that particular chapter than just goats. One of the most alarming aspects of Jesus' teaching is that Jesus spends a whole lot of time saying that not everyone who considers themselves to be a Christian is actually going to heaven. And nowhere is that contrast more stark That in Matthew 25, there are 10 virgins. They're all waiting for the bridegroom. But only five out of 10 were ready for the moment of his coming. There are three servants. They're all given talents. And they all think they're serving the master. But when he returns, one of those servants was cast into outer darkness because of his slothfulness. And then at the final judgment, we just read it. Both the sheep and the goats think they've been serving Jesus, but half of them are sent away into everlasting punishment. Sheep and goats. Now, the question begs to be asked, why goats? Um, And I don't have a good answer, but I've got a good guess. And that's about all you're going to get for this part of the sermon. I think it's because sheep are dependent on their shepherd. But goats are stubbornly, stupidly independent. Goats are destructive animals. They constantly escape enclosures and ruin pastures, and they even harm other animals. There are all kinds of documented cases of putting a goat in the same pasture as a horse, and they will chew the tail off the horse. One one quote I read this week, it said, you know... um, Basically, with sheep, um, you, you just let sheep go in a pasture and, and you know, you, you kind of protect the sheep from their environment. But with goats, you try to protect the environment from the goats. They're, they're just really destructive. Sheep follow the voice of their shepherd, but goats just go wherever they want. They force goat herders. To chase after them. So a shepherd leads sheep, but a goat herder, he runs after his goats trying to catch up with them. So that begs the question for us. And I think it's probably a fairly serious question, actually. Are you a submitted sheep when it comes to Jesus and his word, or are you a rebellious goat? And I'll just let that sit right there because that's not part of the sermon. But still, even in light of all that, Matthew 25 is the only passage In the Bible, where goats are described negatively. Otherwise, we see these animals used in sacrificial offerings in the tabernacle and later in the temple, much like sheep were. In fact, when it came to the greatest, highest, holiest day on the Jewish calendar every year called the Great Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, the Jews would say, goats played the greatest role in the forgiveness of the nation's sins. It was the greatest offering in the whole year. Literally the greatest of all time. I want to take just a detour because I love this verse and we'll come back to it in a bit. The psalmist writes in Psalm 103, The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. Now watch this. He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. This is powerful. For as the heaven is high above the earth, that's how great his mercy is toward them that fear him. And this one. And as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Years ago, I read the observation from somebody, you know, you've got a north and a south pole. There's a definitive limit. There's no such thing as an east and west pole. So east and west is just an unending straight line right around the globe and back around again. That's how far God has removed your sins from you. You couldn't catch up with them even if you tried. They're that far away. It's just a continuous, never-ending straight line. Now, we live in the West, and we live 2,000 years later than the most recent parts of the Bible. And the Western mind, we think in terms of definition, like a dictionary. We like the dictionary, and we we like formulas, and we like steps, and we like logical thinking. But the Eastern mind, especially the Eastern mind 2,000 years ago, the Eastern mind thinks in terms of stories and images and metaphors. That's why when Jesus wanted to explain his love and his mercy, he he didn't give us a formula, he told us a story about a prodigal son that spurned his dad's love and walked away from his dad's house, messed up his life royally, and then when he'd wasted everything, he finally decides, "Well, I should go back home." Now, a formula would say, "No, no, you spend all that, your balance sheet is less than 0, you're done." But Jesus told a story that blew their minds because that father was ready to welcome that boy back. So that's how the western mind, uh, the eastern mind kind of thinks in stories and and pictures. And in your Bible, Leviticus chapter 16 describes this great day of atonement in Israel. It happened on the 10th day of the seventh month. Seventh month of the religious year was also... At the same time, the first month of the civil year. They had two years. New Year's Day, called the Feast of Trumpets, it happened on the first day of the month. And then all of Israel would spend 10 solid days fasting and searching their hearts leading up to this greatest, most holy, most significant day of the year, the great day of atonement. It was 10 days of getting right with God. It was 10 solid days of fasting before the Lord and asking yourself the questions, where have I sinned and where have I let God down and where have I broken God's laws and where have I failed? It was such a solemn time that the Jews referred to it as the days of awe. They were in awe of the holiness of God. Now on the great day of atonement, after 10 days of soul-searching, There were several ceremonies, but two of them stand out in particular. The first was when the high priest went behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkled blood on the mercy seat, the atmosphere in Israel on that day. I have no words to describe to you how tense it was. Because if the high priest's offering was not accepted, the sins of the entire nation would not be forgiven. On this day, only the high priest could officiate. And on that day, when he came to the great day of atonement, he had been living in the temple for the entire week. He stayed up all night the night before, studying the law one more time just to ensure that he didn't make a fatal mistake. And throughout the day, on the great day of atonement, the high priest would wash his whole body five times and his hands and his feet ten times. He would start the day in his priestly garments, but before the atonement ceremonies, he would change into a simple robe of plain white linen. He was coming before God humbly. He was coming before God as an ordinary human being, He was coming before God as a nervous high priest to ask forgiveness. And he wore that plain white linen robe because white is the color of forgiveness in Scripture. So if I could just kind of transport you back there, just imagine the scene with me. Tens of thousands of people are gathered all around the Temple Mount in Jerusalem after 10 days of fasting. Tens of thousands of people are watching what happens in the temple compound. Tens of thousands of people are waiting before God to have the nation's sins forgiven. Literally, the destiny of the entire nation of Israel rests in the hands of one man who is going in before the presence of God to make a sin offering on their behalf. They had better hope that he doesn't make a mistake. And can you imagine the collective sigh of relief from tens of thousands of people when they saw that the high priest had returned out of the Holy of Holies. That was the great day of atonement. But there was something else of significance that happened on that day. Only after that critical task was completed did the high priest move on to the next ceremony, the second unique ceremony On the great day of atonement. It was another picture that God gave them. And it involved two goats. One called the Lord's goat. And one called the scapegoat. Here it is. It's in your Bible in Leviticus 16. And the high priest shall take two goats. And present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron, the high priest, he shall cast lots upon the two goats. He'll, he'll put his hand in an urn and he'll draw out a, a, a stone. There's only two stones in the urn. One is white, one's black. And, and, and so he'll cast lots on the two goats. And, and when he pulls those stones out, one goat will be chosen for the Lord's goat and the other goat will be chosen for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and he will kill that goat and he'll offer him for a sin offering. But the other goat, the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat, he will be presented alive before the Lord. He's not killed. And he will make an atonement with him, and he'll let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. The high priest would cast lots to choose which one of those two goats was going to die that's the Lord's goat, that's the sacrifice, and which one of those goats was to live? The scapegoat. He would reach into that urn and he would pull out the two stones. The white stone would have on it the words, for the Lord, that would be the Lord's goat. The black stone would have the words for Azazel, literally the goat of removal, the scapegoat. Now, some years, you can imagine, it's, it's what we would call, in our vernacular, the luck of the draw. Some years, the, the high priest would put his hand in that urn, and he would pick out the, the white stone. Some years, it would be the, the black stone that came out first. So some years, it would be the goat on the right hand that got to live. Some years, it would be the goat on the left hand that got to live. But once they had been chosen and selected, the high priest would cut up a piece of red wool, And he would tie one piece around the throat of the Lord's goat, signifying that it was going to be killed. And he would put another piece of that red wool around the head, the horns of the scapegoat, signifying that the sins of the whole nation were going to be confessed on the head of the scapegoat. And then after the temple was built, they would actually cut that piece of red cloth, that red wool, into three pieces. One on the throat of the Lord's goat that would die. One on the head and the horns of the scapegoat that would live. And a third piece they would actually tie to the door of the temple. Now, the symbolism here. I'm preaching to Bible lovers here and in the foyer and at home. The symbolism here is so powerful and beautiful because the Lord Jesus, his head was marked with a circle of red when they put a crown of thorns on him and blood came gushing out of his forehead and his head the bible says the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns they wove it together and they put it on his head and they put on him a purple robe so jesus is what's being pictured here he's the lord's goat and he's the scapegoat and without trying to be cute or i'm certainly not trying to be funny He's just the goat. He's the Lord's goat. He's the scapegoat. He is the greatest of all time. The old songwriter said, when nothing else could help, God's love reached down and lifted me. He's everything. He's the greatest of all time. After the Lord's goat was slaughtered and its blood was sprinkled, The high priest would lay his hands on the head of that scapegoat, the goat that was still alive. And he would confess out loud the sins of the entire nation. And he would plead for God's mercy for the people. Can you imagine how long that took for the high priest to speak this long list for an entire year of the entire nation's sins? Everything the priests had become aware of as people had brought sacrifices to the temple day after day after endless day. Every sacrifice that had been offered for the sins of individuals. And as he confessed those sins, all the tens of thousands of people standing in the temple courtyard and just outside, they would know it was taking a long time. And they would be reminded once again of their guilt, of their shame, of their sin and of their need for the mercy of God, for a blood sacrifice to be given and for atonement to be offered. Here's the reference. Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat. He will confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins and he will put everybody's sins on the head of the goat. And he will send that goat away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. And that man will let that scapegoat go in the wilderness. Why? So he can't ever find his way back to the city of Jerusalem. The picture so powerful and so beautiful. You see, when we think about our Lord Jesus, an innocent lamb took the sins of a guilty man so that a guilty man could take the innocence of a sinless lamb. That's how it works for every one of us. None of us deserve to be God's children. None of us deserve to go to God's holy heaven. None of us deserve to know that our sins are under the blood and our future is assured and we're going to be with Jesus when he not one of us deserve that but thank God my sins are not here they were confessed onto him and he bore them and took them away i won't be much longer but my plea is still the same Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. He's the greatest of all time. He's the greatest. Hmm. That Hebrew word, azazel, which gives us our word scapegoat, it occurs in only three verses of your Bible, and every one of them are here in Leviticus chapter 16. If you could read the Hebrew, it's verse 8, verse 10, and verse 26. And azazel means the goat that departs the goat sent out, the goat that leaves, the remover, the sender away, the averter of wrath. When William Tyndale was trying to translate the very first English version of the Bible in 1530, he didn't have an English word for this Hebrew term. And the best he could come up with when he read about this goat that had sins confessed on it and was led away the best he could come up with in 1530 in the English language, he called it the scapegoat. And later, of course, English changed, and scapegoat became scapegoat, and we still use it today. The scapegoat was led out of that temple, and a waiting priest, what the Bible calls a fit man, he took that goat... And he walked that goat several miles outside the city of Jerusalem, way out into the wilderness, and there he released it. And the Jewish writing called the Mishnah records that the moment he set that goat loose in the wilderness, that piece of red wool that was tied to the temple door, the Jewish writings record this, that that piece of red wool miraculously turned white, At the very moment the scapegoat was released, they knew when it had happened because they could see that miracle happen at the temple door. And they believed and still write about it to this day that it was fulfilling this prophecy from their great prophet Isaiah. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I don't know about you, but I know about me. Everything that was wrong with me, it stained me like crimson. I couldn't scrub it out. I couldn't get it out. I couldn't get beyond it. I couldn't get past it. But thank God for the blood of Jesus that washed Washes us white as snow. Thank God that where I used to be crimson and stained today, I'm as white as wool. (laughs) My goodness. You got to imagine this scene. The high priest and tens of thousands of people and they're all watching as that goat is led away. And they watch and watch until it becomes a little speck on the horizon. That priest leading that goat. You can only imagine their excitement because Israel knew this. The further that goat walked, the further their sins were taken from them. Literally, their sins were being taken away. Oh, that brings me back to a scripture we read. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our iniquities from us. You remember when Jesus was crucified, they cried out, away with him. They didn't know what they were saying. Away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest said, oh, we have no king but Caesar. They're playing politics. Then delivered he, him, therefore, unto them to be crucified, this is so significant. You just pass over it. And they took Jesus and they led him away. It's a, it's a picture. Jesus is the scapegoat. Your sins and my sins are about ready to be put on his head. So when he died, oh my goodness, he didn't just die for you. He died as you. He died in your place. So if the devil tries to dredge up your sins, he can't get a hold of them. His fingers keep slipping off of your past because it's under the blood on the cross of Calvary. That's who we are. That's what we have. That's what Jesus did for us it's amazing jesus is the goat he's the lord's goat and he's the scapegoat let me hasten peter writes for as much as you know all you christians you know you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold you couldn't buy your way into god's church it's not from your vain conversation it's not received by tradition from your fathers here's how you got in this arrangement but by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last times for you. The book of Revelation calls Jesus the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It was always God's plan to love you. It was always God's plan to forgive you. It was always God's plan to redeem you. It was always God's plan to snatch you up at sin and let you be part of his family and go to his heaven. God always loved you that much. John, he records the words of John the Baptist in his gospel. The next day, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him and he says, the announcement that started it all, behold the lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. I just got one more little detour, and then we'll wind it up. And I pray that this just just eats at you this week, and you just kind of digest it, and it, it gets in your spirit. Following the destruction of Jerusalem, history records the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And following the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, the Jews began writing two versions of their history, along with religious commentary. They still exist today. It was written on scrolls, of course, back then. Today, you can find it in books. It's on the the Jewish encyclopedia. It's everywhere. And, And these were called the Talmud. One was written in Palestine, and it was known as the Jerusalem Talmud. The other was written in Babylon, and it was known as the Babylonian Talmud. And they both tell Jewish history, along with some religious commentary. And I want to show you something that's so awesome. The Jerusalem Talmud, they both agree on this. The Jerusalem Talmud records this, and of course this is translated into English. Here's what the Jerusalem Talmud says. 40 years before the destruction of the temple, so that's AD 70, 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the western light went out, that's referring to the golden candlestick. The crimson thread, the thread that they tied on the door of the temple, It remained crimson. It didn't change to white. And that stayed that way for 40 years before the destruction of the temple. And the lot for the Lord, when the high priest on the great day of atonement would put his hand into that urn and reach for those stones that were marked, the lot for the Lord always came up in the left hand. In other words, it came up second. For 40 years, every time that the high priest drew lots, it always came up for the scapegoat first. And then this happened. It it scared them. They would close the gates of the temple by night and they would get up in the morning and find them wide open. That happened every night for 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, That's not a one-off. The Babylonian Talmud records the very same thing. Here's how it says it. During the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, that's AD 70, so 40 years leading up to that, the lot for the Lord did not come up in the right hand. It didn't come up first. Nor did the crimson-colored thread on the temple door become white. Nor did the westernmost light shine, the golden candlestick. And the doors of the temple would open by themselves. Somebody say, that's strange. Since both Talmuds record the exact same information, it's obvious that the knowledge of these events was accepted as fact by the widespread Jewish community. And you can still go and read that today in those two books. The Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. What is the significance of those unusual happenings? See, always before the lot, when the high priest drew it, it would come up randomly. Some years, the Lord's goat would be chosen first. Some years, the scapegoat would be chosen first. But for 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the high priest always picked the black stone first. The odds of that happening mathematically are one in 5.5 billion. And so it caused great consternation. See, always before the the red wool tied to the temple door, from the time the temple was constructed and they started that practice, every other year, the second the scapegoat was set free in the wilderness, the second it was set free, that piece of red wool, that thing on the temple door, it miraculously turned white. They didn't have to wait for the priest to come back and say, I delivered the goat to the wilderness. They didn't have to do that. They knew the moment the scapegoat was set free because they saw that miracle of it turning white. But for 40 years leading up to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, the the wool remained crimson, indicating something's wrong with this ritual. It scared them because if it didn't turn white, that meant that the scapegoat wasn't forgiving sins. It, It was a problem. Always before, the priests would do their duty and they would replenish the oil in the golden lampstand. They'd put it in every morning and they'd put it in every evening and the light of the golden candlestick never went out. But for 40 years, leading up to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, the golden candlestick, burning oil on seven branches, it went out every single night of its own accord, no matter what precautions they took. That's over 12,500 nights in a row, and it had never happened before. Always before, at nighttime, they would shut the doors to the temple, and there would be limited access to those uh, holy places during the night. But for 40 years leading up to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, Those huge, heavy, massive gates literally swung open of their own accord every single night. And it's recorded in the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. Now, there's all kinds of explanations floating around online as to why that happened. But I know what happened. What event happened 40 years before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 that caused such a dramatic, unusual, and strange shift in the, great, in the great day of atonement. I know, and you do too. Here's what happened. On the 14th day of the month Nisan in A.D. 30, Jesus Christ, Israel's real Messiah, and their real scapegoat, he took the sins of the entire world on him. And it fractured and shattered temple worship. In fact, so much so that on that day when he said, it is finished, the veil of the temple was ripped apart from the top to the bottom, signifying that not just the high priest, but now anybody could go into the presence of God and find forgiveness. That's what happened on that day in A.D. 30. Why did everything stop working? Why did that scarlet cord on the temple door stop turning white? Why did the lampstand keep going out? Why did the doors keep swinging open? Why did all this happen? Why did the lot always come up for the scapegoat first for 40 years? This wasn't incidental. This happened every year and every day for 40 years. Why? Because after Jesus' sacrifice... No other sacrifice was necessary. No other scapegoat was necessary. He'd already opened the temple doors, so there's no need to shut them. He already was the light of the world, so there's no need for the candlestick. He already had wiped our sins away, so there's no need for a piece of wool to turn white anymore. It's all done. There was no sacrifice necessary the day after Jesus' crucifixion or the week after his crucifixion or the next month or the next year or the next decade. In fact, There's still no sacrifice necessary to add to the cross of Calvary to this day. He's the goat. He's the greatest of all time. He's the Lord's goat who gave his life and shed his blood. But he's the scapegoat who carried our sins away. And that's why I believe God visibly demonstrated through those signs to the Jews that the Old Testament system was no longer working. The writer of Hebrews says it beautifully. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, and by doing so, he obtained eternal redemption for us. The writer of Hebrews again says, Nor yet that he should offer himself often. See, in the Old Testament, that's the key word often. The priests have to offer sacrifices every day, the high priest has to go in every year. It's often, but the writer of Hebrews says, no, Jesus, has, he doesn't have to do it often, as the high priest did every year with the blood of others. Because if that was true, then Jesus would have had to often suffer. He'd have had to be crucified, come in flesh, and be crucified every year since the foundation of the world. But that's not how this works. Four, but now once in the end of the world, Jesus has appeared, and he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then the consequence is this. As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. His blood is sufficient for whatever you've done. His blood can deliver you out of whatever mess you've made. His blood can heal you from whatever disease is plaguing your mind or your body. His blood is greater than anything that is afflicting you. He was once offered. Once was enough when you got the goat, the greatest of all time. Once was enough when he's the greatest of all time and all history and all eternity. And unto them that look for Him, this Savior who did one great act of redemption, He will appear the second time without sin unto salvation. You see, here's how it worked. In closing, the Lord's goat died, but the scapegoat lived. Jesus was both the Lord's goat, the sacrifice that paid for our sins, and He was the scapegoat. He's the one who carried your sins away. The great thing about the scapegoat is that it was let go in the wilderness and it kept on moving. And the picture is that my old life, you listen to me, those of you that are kind of new around CCC, and you look at some of these uh, senior saints and you think, I could never do that. I could never live for God that long. I I don't know if I can do this, Pastor Raymond. You know what? They couldn't do it either. But it's the grace and the mercy of God that's walked with them all of their life. You see, here's the thing about you. Your old life and your sins get further and further away from you every minute you live for God. Your past gets further in the past every week that you serve Jesus. As high as the heaven is above the earth, that's how far, that's how wide, that's how great. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far your sins are from you. Because the scapegoat he ever liveth He's still walking those sins away from you. Even the devil can't catch up with that. Paul said, there's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. If you're struggling, if you've got issues, if there's a mess in your life, that doesn't make you weird or strange It doesn't make you less than. It just makes you human. It's common to man. But God is faithful. He will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able. This is so beautiful. But he will with that temptation also make a way to escape. Remember, the escape goat. That you may be able to bear it. And The writer of Hebrews, he sums up this great Savior with these words. He says, he is able... Also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Why? Why can he do whatever's required in your life? Why can he save you and deliver you no matter how badly you've messed it up? Why? Because he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Brothers and sisters, the scapegoat is still walking your sins into the sea of God's forgetfulness today. The longer you live for Jesus, the more past your past becomes. (laughs) John said, my last scripture, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanseth us from all sin I just wanted to give somebody a little hope tonight I just wanted to give somebody a little confirmation and affirmation tonight that you may feel like you cannot do it and you cannot live it and you've messed it up and shamed yourself and hurt somebody that you love your life is upside down I just want to give you hope tonight if you're watching online right now, I just want to give you hope tonight. There is a goat. He's the greatest of all time. He can take your sins and put them so far away from you that even the devil, looking for a thousand years, couldn't find them. He can take your past and he can give you a future. Jesus is the goat. He is the greatest of all time. And his blood still works. And his forgiveness is still walking our sins away from us. If anybody is in Christ, they're a new creature. Old things are passed away and all things have become new. That's who you are. That's what you have. And brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus did for you. I don't think the devil or the lighting system likes me preaching this way, and I don't care because Jesus is the greatest of all time. And so I don't have anything more to say. I just want to lift you up. But more than lifting you up, I want to close this service by lifting Jesus up. He's the greatest. He's the highest. He's the biggest. He's the most merciful. He's the most gracious. There's nobody like Jesus. He's the greatest of all time. Lord Jesus, right now, I pray for your people. I pray for all of our friends that are here. Maybe they're watching online. I pray for people that they think they could never do this. They could never live this. They feel like they started to be a Christian, and then they fell, and then they failed, and then they fumbled the ball. Jesus, would you please just blow it up in their mind how great you are, how forgiving you are, how merciful you are, how gracious you are would you let this little understanding, this little picture from scripture, would you let it explode in their imagination that you not only shed your blood for our sin but you took our sin on your head and you walked as far away as the east is from the west and because you're still living and because you're still walking and because you're still moving and because you're still delivering and saving and healing. Jesus, we got hope. Transplant that hope into somebody's heart tonight. Somebody that's so discouraged. Somebody that's so down. Somebody that's so despondent. Put that hope in them. Let them know that what the devil says is not the final word. Let them know that the past doesn't have to impact their future. I speak it over them tonight. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Would you just join me? We, we got like two minutes here. Let's just sing this, would you? Oh, Jesus.